One afternoon in the 90s, the story goes that Hollywood actor Paul Newman walked into a bar in Nace, County Kildare, and asked after a local guy, Michael Rowe. The barman couldn't understand what one of the biggest movie stars of all time wanted with a local mechanic. Had he asked, Paul Newman might have said they'd met through motor racing, and at once this mechanic was up there with the best-known drivers of his generation, Ayrton Senna, Elaine Prost, and Nigel Mansell. Ayrton Senna has got to keep Mansell behind. These two are the implacable rivals in Formula One, and you can see for yourselves what this... Michael Rowe was once spoken about as a talent every bit as good. ...to a race that could see Michael Rowe win the Can-Am Championship for 84. He is doing the kinds of things this year that make legends out of racing drivers. For one unforgettable summer, 1984, he was the star of the city of Dallas and looked destined to become a household name. Had Paul Newman driven around the corner, he would have found Michael Rowe here Hello, Mick. in an oily shed behind a white two-story house Mick. where we sent our reporter, Robert Mulhern. I had to do a run down. This is where Michael grew up, and nearly 40 years on from his days in a multi-million dollar race industry, Michael is still fixing cars. Right now, he's bent over the hood of a family estate. Michael is 63 now and works alongside his brother, James. You didn't have to get him all the way for John. All the talk is cars. Yeah, I'm just going to show back to rub my car here. Michael got his interest in the sport from his father. Well, they were farmers. Um, farmers and butchers up in Kiltiern. Uh, but then he was just a keen enthusiast and worked in the cars with us. That was it. In his mid-50s, he uh, started to do this grass track racing. And then that led us into it for a year or so. And then he bought a former Ford car very cheaply. That was the start of it. That's the only car we ever bought. Everything else was just followed from there. But for a long time, Michael wouldn't talk about his career. He's incredibly modest, to the point that he underplays his own story. When you're involved in something, obviously you're very involved in it, but then when it's over, it's over. You know, things move on. But when you really look at it, you realize just how amazing it is. I'd been away from it. I wouldn't even read a book, read a magazine. And the reason Michael has finally agreed to share his story in depth for the first time is because he's going back to America, the scene of so many of his victories. I really had nothing to do with racing for until young James started. Only he's not going back to relive his career, but to help his 19-year-old nephew, young James, realize his dreams of becoming a race car driver. Yeah, I know his career well. I wouldn't say I know it extremely well. I just hear stories here and there. James Rowe Jr. is seen as one of Ireland's best hopes of making it to the highest level in motorsport. It's funny, we, we talk, we don't really talk about racing a whole lot because when you're there at the weekend, you spend so much time focusing on we kind of switch mode and that's a nice thing. He'd be telling me stories from years ago. He's racing in the F2000 series, which is a stepping stone to the top tier of U.S. racing, IndyCar. Here, drivers can earn tens of millions of dollars. The biggest thing for me is just being able to draw on his experience. If I ever have an issue anything or looking for a bit of advice, he, he's been through it all. So nine times out of ten, whatever I ask him, he'll have some sort of an answer for. A lot of people ask me, do you ever think about having your uncle there? It's something I probably take for granted. 
I enjoy seeing him winning, obviously, and I'd be upset when he doesn't go well. And sometimes I might take it out to him a little bit and give out to him a little bit. But then, on the other hand, you know, when he's successful, it's the exact opposite. So. Basically the same, same as I'm racing myself, that's it. Every race, Michael flies out to help his nephew set up his race car. James is competing in seven races in a long, narrow car with an open top. Michael's reluctance to talk about himself means James grew up only hearing bits of his uncle's story. But now in America, he's bumping into people who want to talk about Michael's career and what it might have been. Yeah, I know it's, it's definitely cool coming over here and racing in America just like he did and going to all these tracks that, that he raced at and people know him and every second person would say, oh, you're uh, Michael Rose's nephew. Wow, he was fast back in the day. Or, like, it, these little, little snippets are, are pretty cool. Jim Crawford will attempt to start the 84 season with a win. However, in order to do that, he'll have to beat this man, Michael Rowe, the Irishman now living in Dallas. Michael is the fastest qualifier of the day as he climbs aboard his powerful Can-Am machine. In 1983, 28-year-old Michael Rowe arrived into a dusty racetrack in Oklahoma. Yeah, from what I remember now, it was Oklahoma, a track called Hallett in Oklahoma. I was racing that day. I was racing two different types of cars there. He'd come to America to make it as a race car driver. But that afternoon, Hallett felt like the end and not the beginning, according to his son Shane. I remember my mother telling the story, actually. They literally had three or four hundred quid. Thought they were going to be living the American dream. I think the first few nights they were eating steak dinners and drinking pina coladas, and I think the, uh, the reality was uh, the dream wasn't really there. So I think literally through working from a kind of a phone box and calling on contacts that they've met through the UK, he went about basically traveling the length and breadth of the US trying to find a drive. Again, I think there was several weeks where literally had no money. Michael had spent every penny he had trying to keep his dream alive. And now, just to get by, he'd started selling car parts. And we used to carry bits of spares in the, in the trailer and that, like racing brake fluid. But Michael didn't reckon on his next customer being from one of the country's up-and-coming race teams. So they had one of these Can-Am cars, a big car, and one of their guys kept coming up and buying brake fluid. In 1983, the Can-Am was one of the fastest championships in the world. Basically... You could call it, there were a single-seater, you sat in the middle. But unlike a Formula One car, it had enclosed bodywork with no roof. The cars were big, muscly vehicles with five-liter engines. They had massive wheels and tires, massive wings. They were very, very fast. And the series, run in Canada and America, had a history of producing future world champions in Formula One, the most glamorous and prestigious motor championship in the world. And when this Can-Am guy started buying Michael out of brake fluid, he knew something was wrong. And I just said, geez, he must have a serious problem using alpha out of brake fluid. I said, we can't get the brake spread or we can't get the air out of the system. Then he said, but I come down and have a look at it. Sure, I went down, sure, they had the calipers on upside down. You know, they had the right one on the right-hand side, one on the left-hand side. So we sorted that out, then I got chatting. Unbelievably, within a few spanner twists, Michael's fortunes were about to change because the car belonged to a Dallas millionaire, Don Walker. Just richer than you can imagine, and even by Dallas terms. In Dallas, in, that, in the 80s, you had to have a Rolex and a Mercedes to get a date. The president of the Can-Am Association is a man named Don Walker. We worked awfully hard over the winter with uh, 10 race season this year, 12 the next two years, 
uh, TV contract, seven... Walker seven didn't know Michael, but he offered him a test drive to say thank you. Mechanic Buddy Epps remembers looking his Irish counterpart up and down. Small and wiry, not an ounce of fat on him. No good-looking chap, actually. You know, very light. It's more like a jockey. The principal is out of Sammy four tires. He'll track and he will stop watch. And you got to try and go faster than anybody else. That's the bottom line. Michael went so fast. He left everyone checking their stopwatches. It all happened very quickly. But within minutes, he knew Don Walker found what he was looking for. He asked me to do a race up in Mossport in Canada, up to Dallas, and that was the start of it then, in late 83. Not only did Walker have a driver capable of winning the Can-Am, but quite possibly someone who could bring him right to the top. If Michael's breakthrough in America arrived in unlikely circumstances, then his beginnings in the sport arrived in the most unlikely setting. Because in the late 1960s, when the world's best young drivers were practicing on manicured racetracks, Michael Rowe went to a mucky field in his neighboring village, Eastown, outside Nace, and put his name down for an event that's like nothing I've ever heard. The Eastown Field Day was the gathering of the community, I think at the end of the harvest, at the end of the summer or something like that. This is Ollie Hayden and his father, Tony, or the Toe, as Michael calls him, dreamt up the world reversing championships. You know, there was two ways basically that a man could assert his maleness at the Eastown Field Day. One was chucking the bale over the, the high post and the other one was reversing the car around the bales. A very big event in the Eastown social calendar, not to be missed. It was to reverse into boxes and reverse around poles without hitting them in, in an old prefect. That was your dad's car, obviously, was it? Oh, no, no, they had... They, the tow had an old banger there. Everybody drove the same car. It was timed, yeah, it was timed. So you paid your shilling, got in, did your run, got out, and you lined up again if you wanted another run for a shilling. No one remembers any age restrictions. Just this young kid, still six years under the legal limit to drive, killing beside all the men. I think it was about 10 or 11. But then, those were the days when, you know, there was no such thing as liability insurance, or you couldn't do it now. When it came to Michael's turn, people wondered if he was even going to be able to see out of the car, never mind drive it. But to their horror, they realized he could do both very well. And uh, his father put him into the car anyway and told him to reverse around the bale. So Mick anyway, Junior reversed around the bale and put in the fastest time of the day. This was in the morning time, apparently. They started queuing in even greater numbers to beat the kid's time. And when they did, Michael just beat it again. So this went on all day long. Oh, this young lad coming out from the town, not even a farmer. And this would have been very, very skillful drivers. You know, this is what they were into. Mick ended up the top time of the day. Michael would achieve some staggering successes in his career, but beating grown men from the next neighborhood is still something that gives him great joy. I, rem I remember that well, and I actually won it. I still had the cup at home. I won for it. And I, I think it was the most money the eight seven field ever made was with that. But then, there's no way it could happen now. By 1977, after Michael Rowe had won the biggest races in Ireland, he went to Norfolk, in England. Yeah, when Michael raced for us, we operated those two. Here he met Ralph and Angie Furman. Yeah, where are you from? From Nice. Oh, 
Their Van Diemen team has been to the forefront of world racing for decades. And in the 1970s and 80s, the world's best young drivers beat a path to their door. England was where all young drivers wanted to come to in those days, or most young drivers. They're the best championships. Um, and then they could get on into Formula 3, which is a very strong, strong championship. But I've ran a lot of Brazilian drivers. Among them, from Brazil, a driver still regarded by many as the greatest, Ayrton Senna. Ayrton, a lot of people have been saying that the Lotus was a sprint As special. Course, good it was for a hard, tactical race, corner by corner, lap by lap, because conditions were changing all the time. You it see, I, I kind of brought Ayrton over to England from his karting and stuff, and uh, he won the championship the first year, very much like Michael did. Ayrton Senna knew the best way into Formula One was through Van Diemen's, and so did Michael. The yeah, first time I, I, I guess I met Michael was when he turned up at the works and uh, he, he wanted a car. He was a proper bloke, if you know what I mean. He was straightforward, he knew what he wanted to do and uh, we helped him achieve it. He helped us achieve what we wanted was the following year, the championship. There were about 200 competitors from all over the world, Brazil, the States, Argentina, France, Spain, you know, they all came together in October for this big festival, which was run over two days with a number of heats and semi-quarterfinals, final, and then the final. But in 77, I knew that I just didn't have the real package to win it that day, and I refused to do it. But in 78, I knew I had everything ready. Carways, engine-wise, myself. And I was so confident I came. I was back in Ireland, and I bought a suit for 40 pounds in Cocklands. And we went on to win it anyway with a great time. Michael's ability to manipulate a car at a speed way beyond the motorway limit won him the Formula Ford Festival in Brands Hatch. And if you want to know just how good he was, well... Michael and Ayrton both knew what they wanted and, and, and they had the ability to go out and do it. And for Rob actually to say that, you know, he, he very rarely says that a driver's really good. Except like the top ones, like he talk about Emerson Fittipaldi and... Ayrton Senna and drivers like that, that he, that got there and I was, yeah, and Michael's right capable of driving Formula 1. Michael graduated to the next level Formula 3, but frustrated by the sports politics, he took a step back for a few years before going to America to drive for Ralph Furman. And when he did return, it was with a bang. Because in 1983, around the time Dallas was becoming a big hit on Irish TV, Michael Rowe was becoming a star in that same Texan city. It would be right to say you were on billboards. You would have had, you know, a certain amount of face recognition in, in Dallas. Well, I don't know about face recognition, yeah, but there, there was all sorts of, you know, posters around. And, um, you had a profile there? I, I, had a, I had quite a profile in Dallas, yeah. After that Can-Am test drive, Michael's profile exploded. And in Michael Rowe, the Irish in Dallas had a star in the making. It was a time when a lot of Irish people went to the States. I suppose most of them were in the, in the construction trade. There was a lot of Irish support. I didn't even realize any Irish people living in Dallas until around that time. But I'd also been the judge for the Dallas Rose at Tralee. Even now, his sister, Caroline, can't get her head around an honor 
the city gave her brother. Michael was Grand Marshal in, on the St. Patrick's Day parade in Dallas. And again, I look back and think, God, you know, we, um, I suppose I'm, it's, I'm finding it hard to actually explain what it was like because kind of just took that, yes, yeah, that what's happening in, in St. Pa- you know, on St. Patrick's Day in Dallas, or that's great for Michael, but I'm not sure that we even would have asked him about that when he came home. Uh, I didn't really enjoy a lot of that, but when it was explained to me, look, this is part of your job now. I ran along with it, but it wouldn't be my cup of tea, to be honest with you. Even, even like, say, photographs for programmes, like my mother telling me that, that he was just avoided them at all costs. He'd just gone missing. You know, there was just didn't much know anything about it. Welcome to round one of the CRC Chemicals Can-Am Series 84. Hi, everybody, I'm John Burchard, and we're at Mossport Park, Ontario. The first race of the 1984 Can-Am season was in Mossport, Ontario. And the prize money for every race was $85,000. The series purse, $85,000 per race, and this is a 10-race series, seven of which we bring you here on television. Remember, Ireland then was in recession. The average industrial wage was 20,000 punts a year. A large purse awaits the winner of this race, and a lot of other people will make money as well with a total purse of 85000 20000 goes to the winner, second place. In addition, it was decided that any driver who could win the series' three most difficult races, known as the Triple Crown, would win a $100,000 bonus. Now with me to bring you all the action in this race and throughout the series... Mossport was leg one. Now you mentioned before that there were some great drivers who've come out of the Can-Am. Well, we've got some hot talent here today. They're led by Michael Rowe, who's on the pole. His biggest challenge, I think, is going to be Jim Crawford. Now, Jim Michael's Crawford's big rival that season was England's Jim Crawford. And our own Michael Brockman had a chance to sit down and talk with those two, check them out, and see what they thought of each other's chances. He's going to be two or three seconds maybe quicker than we are, and unless, by some miracle, all the problems solve themselves. And then I'll have a go. I'm going to try and set a pace for myself, a nice, comfortable pace, a fast pace. Um, problem with, with a race like this, if you don't have somebody close behind you, you can lose concentration very easily. So I'm going to try and set a reasonable pace and stick to it. It's Michael Rowe in first. Horse Stroll second. Charles Munch third. Jim Crawford fourth. Just like he predicted, Michael and his Can-Am car blazed to victory. Yeah, I remember we set the lap record there. And if people were starting to take the hype seriously, then what happened next in Dallas would see Michael flag as a future world champion. We fast forward right up to the present day, and 34 years after winning in Mossport, it's June 2018 in Mid-Ohio Racetrack. It's round four of F2000 Championship. James is racing for the Arms Up Motorsport team. He has an advantage over everyone in this field in that his uncle Michael has walked the walk and talked the talk in this sport. Yeah, but you weren't going well at that stage. No, but you're towards the end. Michael can make the tiniest of adjustments to suit a car and a track, and if James could design a mechanic to help him, it would be his uncle. Like, James really got away because... The biggest thing with Michael in my development was vehicle dynamics and setting cars up and what changes do what and understand how to get around issues and just dealing with the handling of the car and, and their performance and the things. Considering the golf and experience, you'd expect Michael to trump James every time. So, Friday practice session, first official practice session, the track was, was damp. And nearly all the time, that's how it goes. But not always. And Michael said, 
Draw on them new tires, draw on them new tires. I said, no, I'm not putting them on it. I think we were, ended the session six seconds quicker than the next F2000 car. <laughs> I came back in and he just said, ah, uh, you're right there, you're right there. And I just said, I know it wasn't. And we laughed and joked about it. But that, that was, that's just a, a minor thing, but usually... These light moments litter their relationship. And less than 12 months after sitting his leaving cert, James Rowe has already won twice in this season's F2000 championship. Another win today will keep him among the leaders. With the race underway, Michael watches on. He picks out James' car. But his optimism is short-lived. Oh, shit. I don't know what happened there, last lap. James knows that on any given day, things can happen outside your control. And in 1984, in Dallas, his uncle Michael faced a very difficult challenge in round two of the Can-Am. The fact that I was living in Dallas, there was an awful lot of media attention. You know, some of the big sponsors of the event, we were doing a lot of work months before the Grand Prix Circus got to town. The question is, will there be a race? What kind of a race? After winning the first leg of the Triple Crown, Michael Rowe was about to mark himself out as a competitor so fierce that he shocked the world in Formula One. It was very hot there, it was 110 degrees. There was probably once 60 in the car. And then the weight of them, there was no power steering in racing cars in those days. And with the big downforce, the steering was very, very heavy. His race was run alongside the Dallas Grand Prix. That meant future multi-millionaires of the sport, like England's Nigel Mansell, Alain Prost from France, Finland's Kiki Rosberg, as well as Ayrton Senna, were in town. But Ayrton has a definite heat problem. He cannot last in heat, and uh, the chance that him finishing his race... Both the Can-Am cars and the Grand Prix cars would race the same street circuit, separately, and drivers raced time trials to decide starting positions. The fastest time started first. So, Michael stunned everyone when he qualified in pole position with a lap time so quick the perceived better drivers in Formula One couldn't beat him. I felt I could do anything with the car at that time. It, it, everything, it was just like a glove on me, the car. I could put it through the eye of a needle anywhere. I think it was as close as I'd ever get to having a, an ideal situation. It was perfect. And then Michael went and got injured. Mechanic Buddy F saw what happened from the pit lane. 10 in the morning, Michael goes out, warms up the car, everything's fine. He comes in and sort of hops off to the side of the car. When he did, he caught his ankle on the splitter on the side of the car, the little edge that sticks out, uh, twisted his ankle and broke it. Michael's ankle was badly swollen. He couldn't race, so the team called for the reserve driver. Team were getting another driver, reserve driver in. And when I saw him appearing with his helmet, I said, There's no way. Desperate to find a way, Michael demanded to see a doctor. So, you know, everybody goes, Buddy, put him on a golf cart, take him to the medical trailer. But when they got there, Buddy realized that the first aid guys were more used to treating horse riders. And we pull up to the medical trailer and it says, Justin Boots Rodeo Medical Trailer. So I go, Okay, Michael, this is it. He hobbles in, doctor looks at it. Uh, wraps it in ice. So 
He goes and sits with his foot up in the air with his ice pack on it for two hours. But after two hours, there was no improvement, and Michael looked set to lose his moment. So he asked to be brought back to the doctor to get a painkiller. And just before the race, we hop back on the golf cart and go back over there. Go in, the guy gives him a shot, wraps it really tight, puts a sock over it. Michael looks at the doctor and says, well, well, let's get me through the race. The doctor looked at him in life. He goes, Michael, I'm a rodeo doctor. I got you eight seconds. After that, you're on your own. But when Michael got back to the car, he realized they'd had a puncture and would have to start at the back of the green. We're coming down to the start-finish line. We're looking for the green. They are lined up and accelerating, and we've got it. The race is underway. With the race underway, his mechanics were beginning to wonder if Michael would finish in one piece. And it was his throttle foot, if I remember correctly, so he was having to use it the whole time. I couldn't, I, I just used that for the throttle. I couldn't use it for brake. I had a brake with my left foot. But then he started overtaking the other driver. Michael Rowe in the bright red BDS Chevy. Heading had a flat tire because the back of the pack and they'll accelerate out of this comes all the way back through the pack. And on the brake card again, Michael Rowe beginning to stretch his lead already. And we still won the race with a broken foot. Michael just didn't win with a broken ankle. He broke the lap record, something the world's best Formula One drivers couldn't do with two good ankles. Our lead mechanic on the car was a tire man at Indy 500 several years, and he just looked at me. We, we always had inside jokes about how tough Michael was, but that day we both just had to agree that that was one of the best performances we'd ever seen for a, a race car driver set a track record there even with the, the injury and, and in the heat over there I used to lose about I could lose up to a stone in a race in a, you know a two hour race I had to be lifted out of the car afterwards between the heat and the pain of it and that's when I realized he was the toughest man on the planet that day but he wasn't alone in this estimation the Tyrrell Formula One team were so impressed they made Michael a massive proposition at the Dallas Grand Prix we were pitted in the same area as him and Martin Brundle blow, broke his leg in the Formula One race. I was talked about to replace him for the Australian Grand Prix and onwards. And uh... Journalist John Kenny remembers the impression Michael made on one of the biggest names in Formula One. Ken Terrell was a giant, a monster in Formula One. And um, Ken Terrell saw what he was doing, how quick he was going. Um, and to be lapping a second faster than the Formula One cars convinced Ken Terrell to give him the offer to go racing. Michael looked set to fulfill his destiny, but at the last minute, he changed his mind. The guy who was driving for Walker, he didn't want me to go, and he, he was promising big things for 85 in terms of, uh, you know, Indianapolis and, and big money. So I, I didn't go any further with the, the Ken Terrell thing. Which I suppose I regret a bit now, but no point looking back. He didn't know it then, but this was the climatic moment of his career. But at the same time, the lap records continued to fall as Michael zoned in on winning the Can-Am. This is the CRC Chemicals Can-Am Challenge from Brainerd International Raceway in Brainerd, Minnesota. Don't forget, his ankle was still broken when he arrived into Minnesota for round three. It's Michael Rowe, winner of the first two Can-Am events of the 84 season. He broke his right foot just before the Dallas race, and he still won the event. Can he pull it off again despite his injury? If his Uncle Michael was showing incredible resolve, then in 2018, James was showing that he too could overcome setbacks after digging out a third-place finish on day two at Mid-Ohio. 
He finished fifth in round five at Pittsburgh. And then, remarkably, he broke the lap record on his way to another third place in round six at Summit Point. As for racing and racecraft and uh, driving the car, he's kind of just let me on my way and I don't get me wrong, I turn to him for advice sometimes and he, he, he'd suggest things, but he's very much of the attitude, what I feel anyway, that you have to learn it yourself and I have no excuses now. I, I, if I didn't know how to drive a car by now, there'd be a problem. But back in 1984, after Can-Am wins at Mossport, Dallas and Brainerd, James's uncle Michael would take off on his own run. Winning gives you a feeling. It's hard to replicate, like in any other sport. You know, you, you get used to winning. Next up, it was Lime Rock. Into the S's now. Watch Rowe's car twitch as he powers his way into the short lead. But at Road Atlanta, Jim Crawford hit back. One. But behind, Crawford is unperturbed, relaxed, easier on his car. After Michael slid off the track. Rowe slides into view and right on the limit. While behind, Crawford. I mean, everybody had their air guns ready for tires or chains or something. And he just didn't come around. I don't know whether we lost a motor. At Quebec, Crawford struck again. Over the track, the starter watches. The green flag is dropped and the race is on. Rowe with Crawford close behind, comes into view now. Start of the Boulevard des Four straights remaining. Suddenly, Rowe is coasting. Clearly the fastest on the Trois Rivières track. He is forced to watch Crawford now take his lead. The fight to win the series was back on until Michael won for a second time in Mossport. They are lined up and accelerating, and we've got it. The race is underway. Immediately, Michael Rowe pulls into first place as they head for turn one. You know, you've got to get back and control your own destiny. Around this time, it sounded like things were getting pretty crazy off the track, too. Well, certainly the stuff we got up to after races and events, and it's that's gone now, anyway. The story I like best is when Michael tried his hand at flying a helicopter after yet another victory. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had to fly from about 100 miles away in Texas. But I had, I had, I had driven it a few times, so... It wasn't an issue. A helicopter? Yeah. And you knew how to and land it? Land it, yeah. There was more success at Sears Point. And we're at Riverside for the penultimate round of the 10-race Can-Am series. And in the penultimate race at Riverside, Michael sounded even more relaxed. I'm always striving for, for perfection. You know, it doesn't matter whether I'm putting a handle on a shovel or driving a racing car and trying to do the perfect job. So I'm not quite sure what he's on about. I was basically saying, no matter what you do, if you want to put a handle on your shoulder, you do as best a job as you can. It's the same with driving a car, playing football, riding a horse. You, you give it your best effort. He was being spoken about as a great of his sport after breaking six lap records outright. That means no one had ever gone around these tracks any faster than any car. A 130-mile-an-hour lap won him the pole. He won at Riverside, and only a monumental failure could keep Michael from the triple crown in his bonus. Same principles are there, you know, you four tires in the ground. You gotta make four tires stick. If his uncle Michael was nailed on to win the 1984 Can-Am season, then in 2018, James Rowe Jr. had a far more difficult challenge. Now, it's late September at Millville, New Jersey, and James must win both races of the two-day event if he's to lift his first championship on American soil. The 1 minute 15.9, now right back into the 1 minute 14 second range, 1 minute 14.7. It's an hour before the race, and Michael has just given James his instructions. Look, if you uh, 
get out in the lead. He said, please don't try and put in fast slaps. Just concentrate corner by corner and say to yourself, let's this corner perfect and then go to the next and this corner perfect. He said, don't worry about a lap time. He said, just get every corner as right as you can. And if you win, you win. And he said, if you don't, at least you gave, you gave it your best. Just four to go for a race leader, Blake Mouth. Back in 1984, this skill in taking corners won James's uncle Michael an incredible 10th pole position in his final round of the Can-Am series at Green Valley. If a driver gets it right in one of these Can-Am cars, he can go flat out all over the racetrack except three places where he uses the brakes. This championship was his, but Michael wanted the Triple Crown to highlight his dominance. Any driver who could win the series' three most difficult races, known as the Triple Crown, would win a $100,000 bonus. So I'm the only one that can win the Triple Crown. I won the second one in Dallas. So then it's down to the last race. Last race, had Paul. Uh, I knew when our fuel window was. Basically, one fuel stop. So, with the fuel check done, Michael's team sat back and waited for their share of the bonus. Everybody on the team was going to get a part, so, I mean, we'd already spent the money. <laughs> yeah, we had all had vacation plans and everything. It had been a near-perfect drive. But then Buddy looked up and saw something was wrong. And as we looked up, he's coming down that back straight back towards pit lane on the track, and he starts, you know, shaking it side to side, pick, trying to pick up what gas he can. And we watched it roll to a stop. And uh, I just ran out of fuel, which, you know, never happens. Everybody knew it was over and we hadn't won. And we'd won everything all year. You could only imagine how bad it was. Literally, six guys sitting in the back of the rig not saying anything, and some of them with tears in their eyes. Uh, for whatever reason, it was nubbled. Michael had come to a stop two laps short of the Triple Crown. Either someone had gotten the fuel calculations wrong, or someone fixed it so that Michael couldn't win the race. It was a, a very sad day, but somebody computed the uh, the gas mileage, you know, one half a lap off. Michael has his own theories about what happened, but he's reluctant to say. I can't say too much, but, but I, I, I do know what happened, but I'm not going to say it. But anyway, I'd, never run out of fuel ever. He was, you know, you could tell he was pissed, but he was still fairly gracious. I do remember that, you know, he didn't want to kill us all. So I thought that was a step. I went to the workshop to follow him on at 8 o'clock, and uh, the guy crew chief at the time was uh, everything was gone his tools were gone everything was gone so we basically knew what happened so that was that it was bad enough losing his crew chief but worse was to come when Michael lost the person he'd given his loyalty to so faithfully when turning down Formula One yeah Don Walker was there with money and talking about going IndyCar racing and yeah, we were already discussing how we'd handle it when we, we did it the next year. Soon after, Don Walker was sent to prison for fraud, and everything collapsed. I think, he, you know, if Don Walker hadn't been a crook and we'd gone to IndyCar, Michael, I think he would have made an impression. He could have, you know, very well would have ended up an IndyCar champ. Today on Sports World. But Michael did get a shot at IndyCar. The 1985 IndyCar season begins. And in 1985, he started the first race, 
beside legends like the American Mario Andretti and the Brazilian Emerson Fittipaldi. Oh, and there was another team racing that day, owned by Paul Newman. IndyCar is a national event in America. It draws crowds of hundreds of thousands and even more watched on television as an Irish driver led the rookie series. When I first went out there, oh, it would have been huge, but it was mainly oval racing rather than street courses. But I was leading the rookie, what they call the rookie championship, which is basically your first year in it. The bottom line is I didn't enjoy it. Not that I didn't enjoy the race, and I didn't, I, the reason I did not enjoy it because I wasn't successful at it. Behind the scenes, all wasn't well. Michael felt his team weren't professional enough to make a serious challenge. Some people thought I was successful, but what their idea of success and my idea of success is, there's about 10 places in the different. To be successful at that, you need a very good team with very big backing. Our preparation wasn't there. Significantly, too, his social life was becoming an issue. But retreating from greatness, Michael still managed to set a record at the world-famous oval-shaped Indy 500 track. And just like his world-reversing title, it's not something that could happen today. I was at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway in 1985, and it was a lashing wet day, and I went up to the, the Union Jackets up over in Indianapolis, where a lot of lads used to go for a few pints and lunch. And I went in there and started playing pool, and having pitchers of beer and burger, and I went on and met a couple of other lads there, and we had a few more pitchers. I guess one of the lads on our team knew where I might be, and I came up to the pub, and we were after spending about five or six hours in there. So I had to go back down to the speedway again on the helmet. I wouldn't have been fit to drive on the road now, but um, I went terribly fast. Uh, and there was a couple of other guys there who were, it was between the two of us for the day, you know, so the chappy might do 208 miles an hour, and then the Irishman does 210, the other guy does 212. We ended up we were too fast on the day, I think. So, not really proud of it. Soon after, Michael left to race in Japan. Later, he'd drive the famous Le Mans 24-hour, and much later, he'd share a grid with a young Michael Schumacher. But there was never another Dallas. And so, now, in 2018, with all those memories mid-fresh again, you might feel there's some redemption for Michael in his nephew's career. And in the penultimate race of the F-2000, James stormed a victory at New Jersey. Number 95. It did look that way. James Rose with the Motorsports Team Ireland finishes third. James, good drive, but not quite enough to keep up with the Cumberlands. But ultimately, James would finish third in his final race. And a bad start, um, just didn't find the right, fell back quite a bit. And, uh, and second overall in this, his first championship in America. We, I think I had more pace than him, but just his, his work was done. And Mike was great. There's a saying in this sport that second is the first loser. And maybe once, that would have been Michael's assessment of James's year. If I didn't think he could do it, he wouldn't be here. And the only reason he's here is because we thought he could do it. If you don't start well, you don't finish well. That's it. But for Michael, this particular journey had nothing to do with redemption. Has he been a good teacher? Oh, yeah. Not a bad teacher. <laughs> The other thing, which is very important, is that being here for six or eight months on his own, he's matured an awful lot. He's had a super education, no matter if he was never to go motor racing again, 
If anything, the most significant victory had nothing to do with the lap records and first place finishes either. He's learned so much about different types of living, different people, different businesses, and that'll be a massive plus no matter what he does. He's gained an awful lot of maturity that will stand him for his life. There's always an next race, right? There's always another year, or is that, is that not the case in this sport? Well, there is always another year, but um, they slip by very quickly. For one unforgettable summer in 1984, Michael Rowe, he was the star of the city of Dallas that looked destined to become a household name. Michael Rowe win the Can-Am Championship for 84. Sometimes I often thought I would have been better looking after a car than driving it. He is doing the kinds of things this year that make legends out of racing drivers. If I delegated the car and engine in a bit more and looked after myself more, I probably would have had better results, but it's just the nature of the beast. Today, Michael still wonders what mine have been. I suppose every young driver, ambition is formidable. It would have been nice, I suppose. You know, you've got a few years there to, you know, you usually only get one shot at it. Unless you have, you own an oil well or something, then you can do what you like. Michael Rowe taking the lead here at the beginning. We've got Michael Rowe, who's won the first two races. And Michael Rowe is driving a VDS Chevy. That's car. And there is your leader, Michael Rowe, and there is that gap. Michael Rowe has done a fine job this season, and he has broken a 12-year-old record by... There's your pole winner, turning the fastest lap ever at Brainerd, more than 120. He is doing the kinds of things this year that make legends out of racing drivers. There's your leader, Michael Rowe, and he is putting the wood to this thing. He is not loafing at all, despite the fact that... No